0: Hey, Diana. What's up, Tim? In the Dr. Seuss book we read today, it uses an argument about whether or not to butter your bread on the top or the bottom of the slice as a stand-in for disputes between the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Doesn't this seem like a silly argument to you?
1: Yeah, it totally does. Because everyone knows you should butter your bread on the top so that it doesn't slip off.
0: Wait, wait, wait. You're a dirty top loader. Everybody knows that buttering the bottom of the bread lets you hit the taste buds first and prevents oversaturation of the butter. Ugh,
1: that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul.
0: Hey, 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 I've got dozens of scientific, peer-reviewed research on this. Science, Diana, science. No. No, I, no, I, I, you, no why? Way. We, why haven't we talked about this before? Why Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. As always, you can listen to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, YouTube, wherever else you may listen to podcasts. You may also check out our website, supercriticalpodcast.com, for a full list of episodes and the occasional bonus feature or two. I'm Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies and thinks about nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons policy for a living. And I'm in California this weekend at a family reunion. And since those can be awkward and sometimes trying events, I decided to rope in my sister, Diana, back onto the podcast to talk about nukes in pop culture. Diana, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Oh, Thanks for having me, Tim.
0: Listeners of the show probably will remember Diana as my guest for our fun episode we did on the romantic comedy Blast from the Past. There was a great discussion about civil defense, fancy fallout shelters, emergency preparedness as seen on TV and in real life. But today, however, I wanted to turn back the page to our childhood. When we were just kids, there was a lot we misunderstood. We didn't need to fret about the atomic bomb. We only needed to know when the Simpsons was on. Radiation, fallout, and a loud scary boom. What are those, I wonder, out loud in my room. I run to the library, read a Dr. Seuss book, super fast. Then I call up my sister to record this podcast. As you can tell from my bout of silly rhyming, today we are here to talk about Dr. Seuss's The Butter Battle book, published in 1984, a few months before I was born. So this book is as, as old as I am, pretty much. Dr. Seuss thought that the nuclear arms race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union was beyond control. So he decided to do what he does best and write a story about it for kids and adults alike. Dr. Seuss, whose full name is Theodore Seuss Giselle. Uh, I actually just found this out. His last name, Dr. Seuss, is actually supposed to be pronounced like Rolls-Royce. plus so like Dr. Soice. I didn't know about that. Do you know about that?
1: I did not know that.
0: Let's call him Dr. Seuss. That's what we know him as. He wrote this book when he was 80 years old. Wow. Yeah. I can't imagine what I'll be doing when I'm 80, but it's not writing best-selling children's books. (laughs) Dr. Seuss had an interesting past. He, like kind of all things in life, uh, if you delve into someone's past, you'll find some things that might be a little bit controversial, but- He was In World War II, Dr. Seuss served in director Frank Capra's Signal Corps unit, which made patriotic films during World War II, including one called Designed for Death, a history of the Japanese people. Um, But if you know Frank Capra, he made movies like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, and a couple other classics. But so Seuss and Capra made propaganda films for World War II for people to watch at home called Why We Fight, trying to encourage people to, to continue the fight. Some of these films supported the internment of Japanese-Americans during World War II. These are just kind of very controversial things, but he took some inspiration from that. He 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 didn't like war. He ultimately when came into his later part of his life, started to realize that these were issues that were more serious than maybe he initially thought. Um, so he wrote a book like the Butter Battle book. In the 1980s, we're right in the middle of the Cold War, tons of nuclear weapons being produced, lots of conflicts, lots of potential for these c- wars to break out, and he thought, this is crazy. I'm gonna to decide to write a book like this, and the book was was pretty well received.
1: I feel like my childhood is ruined.
0: Oh, I'm sorry about that. Better than Roll Dahl, which is another one of our favorites, but he's got some other controversial views. The Butter Battle book had a very positive reception. A uh, number of best selling books lists, including the the New York Times bestsellers list, and it also won him his first Pulitzer Prize. That's not bad. Controversial, though. Some people thought the book might be inappropriate for children to talk about nuclear weapons and nuclear war, and we'll talk about this at the end. Uh, The New York Times review of books, for example, liked the story, but thought there should be a sequel because of the precarious ending of the book, where it left the questions about whether or not the characters were, quote, too close to contemporary international reality for comfort. It was also made into a television cartoon, was also televised and then shown later in the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. And right after that, Dr. Seuss says, the Soviet Union began falling apart. So maybe he takes credit for the collapse of the Soviet Union. And he also considered it the, quote, best book he's ever written and the reason why he is more than just a children's storyteller. So let's let's see if that holds up. Let's go through the book. Uh, spoilers, as usual. Uh, we're going to spoil this, like, five to ten page children's story. So if you haven't seen it yet, there is video of the book on YouTube. You can uh, read the book on the Internet or you can go out to your local bookstore and pick it up. But Diana, let's walk through the the plot here. So in the book, there's two towns that are right next to each other, divided by a giant wall. So we're not talking Game of Thrones. We're not talking the Berlin Wall, although the wall in the book, the word wall is capitalized. So you know it's something big. Two groups of people. You've got the Ukes. They are people who wear blue. And what do they do that distinguishes them from the other people, which are the Zooks, who wear orange?
1: Well, naturally, the yukes uh, butter their bread side up.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that that's pretty normal. What about the, the Zooks?
1: Well, they, for whatever reason, eat their bread with the
0: butter side down. Oh, that's. I can see how that would be a pretty controversial difference. Oh, absolutely. Everything else is pretty much the same. They have different uniforms, but they all look the same. They all kind of speak the same. Their houses look the same. Everything seems identical except for the fact that they butter their bread on different sides of the bread.
1: That is like a super fundamental belief.
0: <laughs> you create your eHarmony profile. Is there a box to check about whether you butter your bread on the top or on the bottom?
1: <laughs> no, but there should be. <laughs> it's almost as controversial as how you put the roll of toilet paper in oh. the bathroom.
0: We're joking now, but that actually is pretty serious. <laughs> so the story starts with Grandpa Ukes. So the guy that wears blue, butters his bread on the top. He's dragging along his grandson along the wall and he's telling a story about why we fight the Ukes, why we resist the Ukes, why we think the Ukes are the worst. As you know, on this side of the wall, we are yukes. On the far other side of this
2: wall live the zooks. And the things that you've heard about zooks are all true. That terribly horrible thing that they do. And in every zook house and in every zook town, Every zook eats his bread <laughs> with the butter. side down. And all honest folks know that you can't trust a zook who spreads bread down below.
0: Every zook must be watched. He has kinks in his soul. That's a pretty serious insult to somebody. That you say their soul has kinks? Absolutely. He tells the young grandson that we follow the right, honest way. That every zook on the other side of this wall must be watched. And that's why he, when he was young, he joined the Zook Watching Border Patrol, which is kind of like a, like a street cop. And he would walk along the wall with his, his Snickberry switch, which is kind of like a stick with some prickly hairs at the end of it. He would walk along the wall, and any time a Zook came by the wall, got too close, he'd shake that at him, and he would threaten to hit them. And that worked out pretty well for him. He was pretty confident in his life. He was having a pretty good day. But one time, what happened? Someone came by and, and ruined his day. Well
1: there was a Zook that came and slingshot over to his side of the wall.
0: That's not good. So no. It broke it broke Grandpa's Snickberry switch and Grandpa has to go back home, basically being embarrassed. He had all this confidence about his position in the world and the relative power of the Yukes versus the Zooks. But now his weapon, his tool of choice, his means of enforcing the wall broke. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Side, side, down.
1: Yeah, obviously the Zooks came up with something just a little bit more powerful that overruled just his stick.
0: So Grandpa, he's got to fix this, right? So he goes to the Chief Yukaroo, who promises better gear, right? He promises better uniform, a nicer slingshot, and this slingshot is called... The triple sling jigger, the, the chief gets this group of people, which I find hilarious. They call them the boys in the back room, the bright boys, weapon designers that come up with the, the next best thing.
1: Well, it's like to, they're engineers, right. so they don't like dealing with people. They <laughs> just want to go and fix the, the problem.
0: Is Chief Uguru the the middle person who deals with the customer so that the engineers don't have to?
1: Yeah, of course. He gathers the business requirements, goes back and gives direction, and then delivers the product.
0: Perfect. Okay, well, this this makes sense to me. And it works out pretty well for our main character here, Grandpa, because he gets a pretty cool new weapon. He gets a nice new uniform, which is like a little feather in his cap. And uh, he goes after this this rude Zook who shot him with a slingshot and broke his toy. Now, this, this Zook in particular, he's given a name. He's one of the few people that's given like an actual name.
1: Yeah, his name is Van Itch.
0: It's a funny name. What do you think it means?
1: I don't know. I haven't really put too much thought into it. It's what, just a funny what... name,
0: right? Right. So I, I looked this up. Ruth McDonald, who is a Dr. Seuss historian – he's written a number of great books on Dr. Seuss – he says it's very – it sounds foreign. It sounds like someone from the other side of the wall, then itch, could be maybe even Russian or Eastern European. But the joke is, is that an itch is something that you can tolerate. Maybe you scratch it a little bit, but you don't cut your arm off to solve an itch, right? Right. So he's saying – Van Itch. he's like an annoying person on the other side of the wall. He's different than us, something you can scratch every once in a while if it gets too bad. You know, you put some cream on it, but you don't need to destroy your entire self. You don't need to threaten your arm or your appendage where your itch is to get rid of it. So it's trying to tell you it's a subtle hint. This is a guy that's going to be a little annoying, but maybe don't hit him with a thousand new weapons every single hour.
1: Brother, I don't think anybody else who's ever read this book (laughs) has thought two cents into the name of this individual.
0: Well, I watch a lot of TV shows where there's mysteries like Lost and I'm trying to solve the mystery. And I was like, Van Itch, is that maybe like if you turn the words around, is it like Ivan... Oh yeah, it's Ivan, like Russia, something like that. Hmm, not really sure. Yeah, Yeah.
1: let's get back to the plot.
0: Okay, that's probably for the best. He gets this triple sling jigger, which is like a three-pronged slingshot that will fire three rocks to the other side. And he's pretty excited. He's now back on top. I
2: march to the wall with my triple sling jigger. I march to the wall with great vim and great vigor. Right up to vantage with my hand on the trigger. I'll have no more nonsense, I said with a frown. From Zooks who eat bread with the butter side down. Van Itch looked quite sickly. He ran off quite quickly.
1: Well, actually, Van Itch did get a little scared, and he, he ran off to probably go talk to the boys in his back
0: room. He's got boys in the back room, too?
1: Uh, something similar huh. of some yeah. sort.
0: Does he run away forever, or does he come back with something else?
1: No, he comes up back with something even a little bit more powerful. The Jigger Roch Snatchem.
0: Ooh, what does that do?
1: Uh, it's, it's a little similar to the Triple Sling Jigger, just a lot more complex.
0: Well, I think what this one does is it catches the rocks that get fired at their side and shoots them back. Right. That's tough for Grandpa Yuke because now his weapon that he spent all this time building, the, the boys in the back building, now it's nullified. It's It's gone.
1: Right. they got to get back to the drawing board.
0: Uh, all right. Well, he goes back to the chief, and the chief says, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. I know you're having a bad day, but don't worry. Slingshots are outdated. They're old tech. What you need is something modern.
2: All we need is a, a more modern kind of a gun. My boys in the back room have already begun to think up a walloping whizzinger of one.
0: So the boys go back in the room, tinker around a little bit, and they come up with a new weapon. This is the Kickapoo Kid. This is a fantastic new weapon, I would say. It, it's on top of a dog. They trained this dog named Daniel, the Cocker Spaniel. It'll carry, essentially, it's like a cannon. It's pretty cool stuff. It fires using poo powder. When you combine it with the dog, hopefully it's not powered by dog poo. But it fires ants' eggs, bees' legs, and dried, fried clam chowder, which... Sounds pretty gross to me.
1: Uh, absolutely.
0: I would not want that fired at me. They take this, Daniel carries it over to the wall, and again, he's like ready to declare victory. People are marching with him, they're singing songs. It's
3: time that we bop
0: them. Those monsters
2: that dwell.
0: On the, on the other side of the wall. wall.
3: They're fucking and freaky. They're and sneaky. They're rude and they're cruel.
2: They're frightfully lewd. On, on the other side of the wall. It's time that we bash them. My dear, they're ugly and natural. I'm Captain Armory! They're weird, co- they're suspicious. They're noxious, they they're rotten, malicious. They're goose and ferocious. Repugnant, repulsive, they are. We're fine.
1: Fight, fight for the butter side up. Do or die.
0: But alas, does this work out in his favor?
1: It doesn't. What is Van Itch up to now? The Zooks came back with an eight nozzled, elephant totted boom blitz. <laughs> It shoots high, explosive sour cherry stone pits.
0: Oh no, those are the worst kind. I think that that tops that tops the kickapoo kid.
1: Absolutely, but poor doggy. I know. Poor the,
0: Daniel. The elephants outbeat him, so Grandpa's down in the dumps, and he goes back to the chief, and he finds out he's promoted to general. He gets a fancy new uniform. He gets a nice big red cap, and he says, "Here, here's the perks. You get a new uniform. You get a new title." Gets a new great weapon that he can use to start the quote big war. Eh,
1: that sounds like a lot of propaganda to me.
0: <laughs> it's a lot of it's a lot of pressure to put on Grandpa too. Um, just a couple of days ago, he had a slingshot. Now he's going to have this fancy new weapon. This fancy new weapon is called the Utter Sputter. It's supposed to be an airplane, but it has giant feet, so it kind of like hops around on the ground. What it will do, according to the, the the boys in the back, is it will cover the zooks with blue goo which will gum up, I guess, their chewing ability, so they can't chew their bread even though it's buttered on the bottom. They can't do anything like that. Although I think the, the fun part about this was even the, the chief was like, well, we don't know what this does, but here, take the, take the wheel. <laughs> Grandpa flies this thing or kind of walks this thing all the way over to the wall, and he's excited for victory. He's kind of given the heads up of just, you know, go start, go start attacking. Not even He's no longer on a mission to keep out the Zooks. He's like, no, now we're going to go take him out. But well, this probably works out well, right?
1: Uh, except that the Zooks came back with a sputter exactly the same.
0: Uh oh! Vanish! <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yah! Yah! How do you like my plane? Forget it, old fellow. You are stymied again.
1: Exact same one.
0: Uh oh. It sounds like there's some kind of a spy, a Zook spy and oh. with the boys in the back. It reminds me of the fact that the Soviet Union had a spy network during the Manhattan Project when the United States built their bomb. They had some some spies that helped them get the bomb less than five years after the United States. I think that's a subplot that we don't really get in the book, but if you read between the lines, like the four lines per page, you can really see that.
1: Yeah, and you definitely don't get that when you're five years old reading this book. <laughs>
0: So Silvanich threatens to goo the yukes if the yukes goo the zooks. We're in a situation now where if you hit me, I hit you. So this results in total despair in the, the land of yukes. Grandpa comes back, lands his utter sputter, and he gets mocked by the the song girls and the marching band who just a little bit of, a little while ago were singing him on and tells him that he did terrible flying.
1: Yeah, that was they quote said That was a pretty sour flight you just flew, and the Chief Yukaroo has been looking for you.
0: Oh, poor guy. You know, he could have attacked the other side, but then all of them would be covered in goo. He actually made a good decision. The Chief tells Grandpa that this is the last straw. The boys in the back have spent hours and hours coming up with this next big weapon, what the Chief calls the new gadget, the final weapon that they need, which is called... The Bitsy Big Boy Boomeroo. The bitsy big boy boomeroo. And this thing looks like an egg, right? Like a little egg you would hold kind of around Easter time or maybe when you're making scrambled eggs. But it's filled with this mysterious substance called Mook lakamu And if you throw this egg or if you drop it somewhere, something bad happens. It seems like everything gets destroyed because the chief then says, take this egg, my friend. I love how when he hands him the egg, he's like hiding behind a window and has it like on a stick.
1: Yeah, just in case he drops it.
0: Right. You
2: got a little itsy, big boy, Boomeroo. That lovely throbbing, clobbing gumdrop that you're holding in your hand will blow those blasted zoops away to Never never land.
0: <laughs> and he tells all the townspeople of, of Uchtam to go in an underground bunker because once this thing's going to happen, this bomb's going to get dropped, they need to be safe somewhere. So it sounds like it's a pretty big thing.
1: Yeah, uh, looks I th- dangerous.
0: Uh, I thought this was funny that they called it a gadget, uh, because the nickname, this, the code word during the Manhattan Project for the first atomic bomb was the gadget. That's how they referred to it. That was the the code. They didn't call it an atomic bomb, because then if the, the Germans wouldn't see What they were working on, they'd be like, oh, that's what that is. But if you just call it a gadget, that could be anything. Could be like a new radar system, could be something for the president's uh, radio, you know, anything weird like that. But I just thought that was kind of funny. I'm sure he knew that when he put that in there. So the Ukes go underground, and Grandpa solemnly walks over to the wall and he runs into Grandson, right?
1: Yeah, he runs into his grandson and he says, What are you doing? He essentially says, What are you doing here? You should be down that hole, but you're up here instead.
0: But then Grandpa has a change of heart, right? He says... But perhaps this is all for the better somehow. You will see me make history right here and right now. You will see
2: your old grandpa put an end to them all. Put an end to all those Zooks who live over the wall. Put an end to the every last village and town of those fiends who eat bread with the butter side down.
0: Yeah, I mean, you might get blown to smithereens, but... You'll get to see me in my final moment of, <laughs> of victory over the over the Zooks. Uh, Grandpa goes up to the wall. He climbs a tree. He's on top of the wall, and he's basically saying, all right, it's time to do this. If you're following along closely, you probably guess what happens next. And I, my dear chap,
2: have a message for you. Namely, I also have a big boy boomeroo. And it's my firm intention, since I have the means to blast every Uke Into small smithereens.
1: So he's met at the wall by Van Itch who also has a big boy
0: boomeroo. He's got his own?
1: He's got his own. Looks just the same. Just like that egg.
0: Uh oh. Well, they both stare each other down. They come up to each other. They have the two eggs kind of sticking out and the grandson says
3: Grandpa, be careful. Hey! Easy. Oh, gee. Who's gonna drop it? Will you or will he?
2: Wah. Wah. Be patient. We'll see. We. We'll see.
1: And at this point, I grew so incredibly frustrated because we don't even know
0: what happens. I know we're we're kind of stuck. We're, we're, who's going to drop what? Is it going to is one of them going to drop it? Is are they going to accidentally drop it? Are they going to drop it on purpose? We don't know. But I guess that's kind of where we find ourselves today, right? Or maybe during people were during the Cold War. We who knew what was going to happen first? Yeah, it kind of ends. We don't know what's going to happen next. But that's why we're bringing in the expert. Diana and I are joined right now. By my third grader, seven-year-old, Dr. Seuss expert, Jerris, our nephew. Jerris, how you doing?
3: Good.
0: Thanks for coming over here on the podcast. We have some questions for you because we're trying to make sense of this book. You've read, you've read a lot of Dr. Seuss books, right?
3: Yeah. What's your favorite? Um, cat in the Hat.
0: That one's pretty good. That one makes sense, right? There's a cat causes mischief, then people have to clean up the house really quickly before their parents get home.
3: Yeah.
0: What about this book? What do, what do you think happens? How would you describe the the story here, if you had to tell your friend to read the book?
3: There's two countries, and they're both trying to um, protect them by having a wall, but but this guy named Vanish comes up and slingshots um, his his Nick very sweet. He comes back. He goes back to the chief, mm-hmm. and, and all sad. And then they all start fighting, just because one of them has their butter side up, and the other ones have their butter side down.
0: <laughs> yeah. What do you think happens at the end? Do you think um? Do you think one of the people are gonna drop an egg? Do you think they're what do you think is gonna happen?
3: I think that um, the zooks are going to lose and the yukes are gonna win.
0: Oh, okay, so you you pick a side. Yeah. So what? Whose side are you on here? The yukes. The yukes because you butter your bread on the top. Yeah. Oh, okay. So do you think the the zooks are the bad guys then? Yeah. Yeah. You think Grandpa's gonna throw the egg on the other side? Yeah, I
3: think the grandpa will do
0: that. But then what happens to to the yukes? Are the zooks going to drop their egg? Maybe. Maybe. But then no one wins, right? Because cause the, the eggs are terrible. The eggs will blow up everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you think you think the yukes are going to throw the egg to the other side, and they're going to beat the zooks who butter their bread on the bottom? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, mm. Hopefully hopefully everybody's underground. Yeah. Did you enjoy this book when you read it?
3: Yeah, it was pretty funny. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot.
0: Have you tried butter in your bread on the bottom? No. Would you ever want to try? No. No? You, you wouldn't even give it any consideration? No. <laughs> okay. When Grandpa Yuke and Van Itch are on top of the wall and they're pointing their eggs at each other? I feel like we don't
3: know what's going to happen.
0: You want to read another one of these books? Like a, a find out what happens next? Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe you can write it. <laughs> okay that's your new project you have to write a, a sequel to the book what's going to happen next and you can put batman in there if you want yay okay <laughs> cool all right Jerris, thanks very much you're welcome so now that we sorted that out Jerris, with his expertise we can get super critical about it. Again, Diana is not a, a nuclear expert. She's got her own professional career that's completely normal and sane and is outside of the things that I work on. But hopefully you can bear with me here um, because I knew Dr. Seuss did his research on some of the topics here. You know, he's talked about it. It's about the arms race. It's not just about the nuclear arms race. It's kind of the idea of you build a new weapon that's modern and you think it's going to be the thing that's going to end all war and then someone else comes up with something else. It's just kind of this weird cycle that seems to happen, uh, and the way I, I like to think about that is, I spent some time that uh, we flew over here from DC to California, and I was like, "What do each of these weapons mean? Like, what do they do? They think they refer to something in real life?" Uh, and you can tell me when I'm being too crazy here. I like the fact that his weapons could mean something in real life, but it's also funny because they have funny names, right? Like. Right. They have very funny names but they're also dangerous things. So it's kind of the weird juxtaposition there.
1: Do you even think that the characters in the book represent actual individuals in our history?
0: I would say that the Zeuks and the Zooks probably don't refer specifically to the to the either like the Ukes are the US and the Zooks are the Russians during the Cold War. I think they're supposed to be either or. Because my sense of the story is, is that all apologies to Jairus. I would say that the Ukes or the Zooks aren't really good or bad. They both have questions about what they're trying to do. You know, they both have their own pride in their country. They both have their butter. They think that's the right way to do it because of their culture and their preference sets and all of those kind of things. But yeah, Van Itch is annoying and he shoots the slingshot and destroys Grandpa Yukes' You know his snitchberry switch but grandpa was also going up to the wall and threatening all of them with this stick and said don't come over here on this side so maybe van itch is just simply thinking hey you attacked us first you threatened us i didn't hit you with the slingshot i hit your weapon with the slingshot so now we're even now we can be okay and then it keeps going back and forth this is clearly an analogy being set up a story here but i look at the different weapons the snickberry switch which is like a very simple weapon. It's a baton or that medieval weapon where you have a, a chain and a, like a spiky ball at the end. and You kind of turn it and you can hit people with it. I think this represents a time where we use sticks and swords for warfare. It's like the most simple thing. And then the slingshot starts to be like bows and arrows. It. And then you got your triple sling jigger, which I think represents the missile age or guns. You know, still conventional stuff, though. Nothing... No nuclear, chemical, or biological weapons, and this is the the slingshot that's got three rocks that it will throw at one time. But then the Jigger Rock Snatchem, I love the names here, is missile defense, right? It's something to knock out the incoming projectiles and prevents you from even able to fire them and hit their targets, which is great for the for the side that has one of those things. But then the side who builds the, the weapon, they don't they, they they lose their ability to use them, so they have to come up with the Kickapoo Kid, which This is the thing that fires um, ants' eggs, bees' eggs, and dried, fried clam chowder, which is super gross. I think this is like a biological weapon because you can imagine something gross like that being flung over to the other side. That's something that will cause like a science experiment on the other side that gets hit. Right. But then they they get fired back. The eight-nuzzled elephant-toted boom blitz, that's the one that fires sour cherry stone pits. It seems like that's still a conventional weapon, but it's similar to some weapons that were used during Vietnam, these cluster bombs that would fire like small little pellets of weapons. I think that's somewhat similar. I don't know if it's exactly like it. But when we get into the Utterly Sputter, this airplane-like thing, this is the one that fires goo on people. This seems to be a, a, a pretty clear reference to chemical warfare. When you have goo on someone and it starts to affect their ability to chew things, might be a nerve agent. Maybe I'm thinking too much into that. I think he's he's taking these ideas that are from reality – And putting funny names on them, but they still evoke the same fear if they were used, but also a weird sense that the the people who build them are like, all right, this is going to be the thing that's going to be the next modern invention that will lead us to victory. And then finally, the bitsy big boy boomeroo is clearly some sort of an atomic bomb. It's like a big weapon, doomsday weapon even. If if everybody needs to get underground, that sounds like it's going to be a pretty big explosion. And I think it's funny because the first atomic weapon that was used, its name was Little Boy. So you got Big Boy Boomeroo. I think there's a little fun playing around there. And it's filled with the mysterious Moo Lakamoo inside the egg, which I guess is like the fuel to make the explosion. This I think is a stretch, but Moo lakamu sounds a lot like plutonium. I think that's a stretch. But then I watched the cartoon, and the cartoon has extended scenes. There's definitely references to plutonium in the cartoon. <laughs> it's not for children's references, like children to be able to recognize it. But you see this goo that gets created, and then it gets pushed into a spherical shape and get turned. And there's a the song says, you have to shape it just right and compact it down. Now this sly unstable substance
2: dug from deep beneath the land. Contains primeval powers that we scarcely understand. And when it starts to burp and bubble, you compress it in the scrubs. That precipitates the plugins and activates the Glocks. And Then you squeeze it till it's squizzin', Then you squeeze it even tighter, cause the tighter that it's squizzin', makes its mighty might
0: more miter. That's just how plutonium is shaped into a sphere, which then needs to go from the size of, a, say, a soccer ball down to the size of a baseball, like to compress it so that the actual the bomb will work and the supercriticality, all these things that we talk about on the podcast. They joke about that in the cartoon. I'm, I'm not too far off base here. The, it doesn't just play around with the, the names of things, but it plays around with this idea, and I'm sure you've heard of this, mutually assured destruction or MAD. This is the idea that if you hit me, I'm going to hit you. So why would you hit me? And there's the references to it here in, this, in the story. Van Itch says, if you sprinkle us Zooks, you'll get sprinkled as well. And I'm here to say that if Yooks can goo Zooks, you better forget it. Because Zooks can also goo Yooks. Similar concept as Mutually Assured Destruction.
1: Makes sense.
0: Right. It's, it's a concept that you may not have heard the name. It's abbreviated MAD. The guy who coined the term uh, Mutually Assured Destruction or MAD, his name is John... Von Neumann. He's someone who was a a weapons designer and a a strategist. He invented game theory. He loved funny, humorous acronym. To him, it was... A funny idea, but it also was an idea that he thinks would be a good one. But mutually assured destruction as a concept, right? If you hurt me, I hurt you. There's things that you need to do to be able to make that work. It's not simply a matter of I have weapons, you have weapons. We deter each other from hurting the other person. There's things that you need to set up. And this is going to get a little geeky. I don't think mutually assured destruction may actually have existed in the Butter Battle book. So it ends with who's going to drop it first, you drop it, I drop it. But I think that there are some things that you need to do to create mutually assured for example you need your weapons to be survivable so if i were to hit your stuff say diana you and i are feuding we're right. in the back we're in the back of a car on a, on a family road trip
1: like a station wagon like and we used to have
0: exactly so we're on both sides of that station wagon and i have something that can throw i can throw at you and you have something that you can throw at me right right and we agree we won't throw it at each other because the other person will throw theirs back and we're both in the same situation Right, But there are some things we need to do to make sure that that mutually assured destruction, or probably not destruction, it's like mutually assured annoyance, like ma, something like that. Uh, You need your weapons, whatever you're going to do, you need that to be what's called survivable. I can't take out your weapon first and then hit you. Right. Because then you're you're left with nothing to hit me back with. Right. So I don't think that the Yukes or the Zooks, their weapons were just carried around in their hands. If you were to throw a slingshot... And knock out that egg or knock out that person, then you have the advantage over them. So that's an important aspect of creating mutually assured destruction. You have to have quick readiness, which means your tools need to be used at a moment's notice. So if you have your, I don't know, probably like a poly Pocket or something you're going to throw at me. and But if it's on the ground and it's not within arm's reach, then I can take my Game Boy. Maybe I won't throw the Game Boy, but I'll throw the batteries of the Game Boy. <laughs> at you. You have to make sure that that's ready to go. And I think that in the situation we find in the story, if I were really get really super critical about it, there's only one guy that apparently can do all this stuff, right? What if Grandpa's sleeping? What if Grandpa's at the movies? You know, what if he's not on patrol? These are the kind of things that you need to think about when you have this situation at the end where it's mutually assured destruction. What if Grandpa gets tired? What if someone else needs to take over because Grandpa's on vacation? Grandpa seems to be the only one that can fly the utterly sputter. These are the kind of ideas that sound silly, but they're the same problems and questions that planners thought about during the cold war how do we maintain our airplanes so that they're ready to go at a moment's notice because if we think that the russians are flying their weapons in and or the missiles are on their way. We have to make sure that our airplanes can get off the ground so that they don't get destroyed. I also think that the better plan here would be to take the take the big boy boomerang and put it on the utterly sputter or a slingshot. Combine those two things so it's easy to deliver it. Because it's not just a matter of having the weapon; you have to get it somewhere. Right. In this car example, you have to throw it. Or you have to drop it on someone's head. Or you have to give it to our younger brother and he can deliver it. <laughs> Someone else has to do something like that. So it's not just a matter of having the weapon. You have to be able to deliver it. And in the story, they hand deliver the bomb to the other side, which is kind of like a suicide mission for, for Grandpa or for Panitch.
1: So true. I thought that right away.
0: That's why they also say, all right, here's his uniform. You have all these responsibilities. But also, can you just go over there and, and commit suicide while destroying the other side, please? That'd be great. <laughs> At
1: least he looks good on doing it.
0: <laughs> That's true. So that's an important aspect to it. Missile defense is an, is an interesting example when you think about mutually assured destruction because the ability for both of us to hurt each other and that what creates peace. What if I can knock out your incoming attack? What if when you go to throw your poly pocket, I decide to put up like a book and it blocks the poly pocket from hitting me in the noggin. Then you no longer have the ability to, to get me. Right. And then now I can throw my Game Boy batteries right back at you. So when Van Itch creates the Jigger Rock Snatchem. That's essentially missile defense. It prevents them from being able to, if they were to throw the bomb egg over to the other side, if they can catch it and throw it back, then that eliminates one side's ability to to attack them. And one of the final aspects of of mutually assured destruction is attribution. You have to know who attacked you. Now, it's a little easier here because there's only two towns. Right. So if someone gets hurt, you know it's probably the other side. But that's not the world that we live in. In a world where there's more than two countries with nuclear weapons, or big boy boomerous, you have to find out who was the one that fired them, because you can't just start throwing them at everybody right. to retaliate. So the attribution is an important aspect of that, including also warning systems, knowing that there's an incoming attack, because if you don't know the attack is incoming until the the eggs start dropping on your side of the, the wall, then it's too late. Right. I think it's funny that there's no early warning system in, in this world. It just happens to be a coincidence that... Grandpa and Van Itch go to the wall at the exact at the same exact time. the exact
1: same time. So they
0: need watchers on the wall. Sorry, another Game of Thrones reference. But they need people on the wall to spot anyone coming to the other side. So these are all those silly questions, but I just want to make it clear to people that listen to the podcast, mutually assured destruction is not just because two sides have weapons.
1: But So let's say they dropped an egg. Let's talk a little bit about like the, the bunker situation right. that we did see in this book. Do you think that's relevant to the Cold War?
0: It is that episode that we did on uh, blast from the past. We talked all about fallout bunkers, and so this one appears to be. Um, there's two bunkers that I see in the in the story. Right there's the community shelter where all the townspeople go, and I think it's funny when you read when you look at the book or if you watch the cartoon. They've got these wide eyed, really blank expressions on their face. They're they're going down the bunker, but right. they're not really excited about it.
1: No, and you can also see in the book that I mean they're lined up pretty. Formally, mm-hmm. it's almost as if they've done it before.
0: Yeah. Do you, do you think the bunker is well stocked with all the things that we talked about that you need to have in a fallout bunker?
1: Uh, hopefully there's uh, green eggs and
0: ham. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hopefully two weeks worth of green eggs and ham, at least. Although who knows what kind of residual effects this big boy boomeroo does. Right. It's not clear. They don't make a reference to whether or not there's like a radiation like thing or if it's just things get destroyed. And when it's over, you can come back out of the hole.
1: Yeah, I don't remember thinking too much about that when I was younger reading this book. <laughs>
0: Probably not. But there's also a government bunker. There's the, the bunker that the, the chief goes down along with the, the, the boys, boys in, the, in back. the back. yeah. So that is more like a command bunker, a presidential bunker, or leadership bunker. Those are things um, that we talked a little bit about in our Terminator episode because there's certain facilities like for a long time Greenbrier in West Virginia is a, was a resort where people would go for skiing and other kind of fun stuff. But in the basement of that, they built the congressional fallout bunker. So where people, members of Congress, to ensure the continued presence of government would go down there. And then eventually the Washington Post in the 1990s found that out. Uh, They said, why does this conference room have blast doors? That's kind of interesting. And they reported on it, and then it's no longer able to be used. So maybe there is a congressional bunker somewhere else that we just don't know about it in the cartoon so it looks like a like an Escher painting where there's just tons of staircases that are s- no handrails or anything but they just spiral down uh, into this little bunker room where they build the big boy boomeroo. but something that we don't see in here that we probably would have seen in, in real life is any sort of descent amongst the the yukes or the zukes right there's no people except for the grandson at the very end who's like hey be careful there's no one else that does any sort of hey maybe this is dangerous Maybe we should not keep going toe to toe with the other side. There's no presence of what was called the the nuclear freeze movement or the campaign for nuclear disarmament. These protest movements. Like, do you remember recently after President Trump was elected, there was the Women's March on Washington? Right. This gigantic protest was one of the largest protests that people. Well, the previous record holder for that was marches for nuclear disarmament during the Cold War, where they were trying to say either we should get rid of the bombs or we shouldn't test anymore outside in the atmosphere because it's causing fallout radiation and making people sick. There's no version of that inside the story, which I think was was pretty interesting. Actually I
1: might have to disagree with you on this. Hmm. I felt that when I got to the end of the story, there was a little bit of that, the peace movement between Vanich and Grandpa, being hmm. that both of them had, you know, this opportunity to blow up the other side of the town but they didn't right away. It's almost as if they were going to maybe be peaceful and try to work it out between the two of them
0: and come to an agreement. So that's your take on the ending is that they'll stop threatening the other side because they didn't do it immediately.
1: Absolutely. Maybe come mm. to a conclusion on which side of the bread to butter on <laughs> or both.
0: Why not have butter on both sides of the bread? Then you got double butter. <laughs> um, okay, be- Paula Deen. <laughs> That's good. I don't know if I agree with your hopeful conclusion, but I do think that the kid represents the next generation of people in this town who might see what grandpa did and would say, you know what, grandpa's got his good qualities, but he's also a bit of a crazy person. And I think that my generation as the young child will be hopefully more sane in the future when it comes to these things. So I don't think it's immediate, but I think hopefully it goes on later on. And the last thing I think is interesting here, when during the Cold War, the Russians and the Americans both had nuclear weapons, and they were pointing them at the other side. And if you want to say mutually assured destruction existed, that meant that there was no shots fired directly between each side, right? That's why they call it the Cold War, is because there was no actual fighting. But this is something you probably never heard of because this is not really the field that you follow. You decided to to do a more normal profession, and I appreciate that for the sake of the family. But there's there was an idea – a theory called the stability instability paradox and this idea is if at the strategic level which means nuclear weapons there's stability because i have weapons you have weapons we're not going to use it therefore we won't engage in like direct war back and forth if we're in the back of the car and you have your poly pocket and i have my game boy batteries and we're not going to throw them at each other because we realize if we do it's going to hurt us too we decide to find proxy battles to fight We have a need for conflict because we have differences of opinion. Instead of fighting them where it could be really dangerous, we fight them in third-party locations. So during the Cold War, instead of fighting in Europe, instead of fighting on American or Russian soil, the United States and the Soviet Union fought in in third-party locations. The Korean War was was an example of this, Uh, arguably the Vietnam War was an example of this, Afghanistan, Latin America, these were places where the U.S. and Soviet Union supported proxies, and that's how they were able to resolve conflict, resolve if you can call it that. So the idea is is that stability at the top would result in instability at the lower level, and the worry could be, will that lower level conflict get worse and worse and worse and ultimately cause nuclear conflict? The Yooks and the Zooks probably should have fought their butter orientation ideology, They probably should have fought that conflict in a third-party location, you know, somewhere maybe like (laughs) Hoosville or another location in the the Dr. Seuss mythology. All right, so that was pretty in-depth, but now I've got a game to lighten the mood here a little bit. You ready for this? I'm down. Shall we play a game? So we both read Dr. Seuss books quite a bit, and a number of Dr. Seuss books, like this one here with the Butter Battle book, It has a moral message or political subtext that you don't really realize when you're reading them when you're young. But you find out way later in life, and they have this. And either you can express amazement for the creativity of the writing, or you can get mad because you feel like you were tricked.
1: Yeah, I think the later.
0: Yeah, no one wants to be like, oh, I had to learn a lesson when I did this? (laughs) In light of this, I think we should play a round of the classic game, a Dr. Seuss book's moral take. Is it real or is it fake? I'm going to give you the name of a real Dr. Seuss book and a moral subtext behind it. And you need to tell me whether or not it's real or something fake that I just made up to trick you. Got it. I have 15 of them. If you can get eight of them, you win a prize. If you fail to get eight of them, you need to repeat elementary school like Billy Madison. (laughs)
1: Let's get started.
0: Here's the first one. The Lorax is really about environmentalism and anti-consumerism. Real or fake? Fake. Fake that one is absolutely real so they made the Lorax recently into a movie I think Danny DeVito was the voice of the Lorax I think Um, but yeah it's about didn't catch uh, that one in the theaters No. well so the Lorax is like a guy and he lives in a forest and they're tearing down his trees and he's not happy about it So that one was real that was supposed to be the easy one so we'll see how this goes one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish Is really about the impact of pollution runoff on marine life. And Jairus is still here, so you can go to him for your lifeline if you want to.
1: Jairus, do you remember what this book is about? It's about fish that have different sizes and different colors and different ages.
0: So what do you take from that?
1: Uh, It doesn't help me at all, but I'm going to say real.
0: That one's made up. <laughs> Jairus is right to laugh. If I ran a zoo is really about the epidemic of people eating endangered animals.
1: These are tougher than I thought. I'm going to say that one's real.
0: That one is fake. Dr. Seuss did not write a book about people that own a zoo to eat endangered animals. <laughs> How the Grinch Stole Christmas is really about criticism of materialism and consumerism.
1: Oh, that is definitely real.
0: Bingo. That's the first one you got right. Perfect.
1: <laughs> I love Jim Carrey
0: as the Grinch. He was pretty good. The Sneechies is really about promoting racial and religious equality.
1: I'm going to say that's real.
0: Correct.
3: Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Good. And Diana got one. All right. Next one. Oh, the places you'll go.
1: Ah, uh, My favorite book. I give it to everybody who graduates.
0: But is it really about the challenges of life and death?
1: Yes, that's definitely real.
0: That is a good book, and I'm glad you uh, recommend it to people. It's one of my favorites too. Next one, there's a wocket in my pocket. It's really about the 1964 presidential election between LBJ and Barry Goldwater.
1: I haven't a clue. I haven't even. I don't even <laughs> remember that book. So I'm going to say fake.
0: Correct. That is fake. Well done. Uh, We talked about the 1964 election in our episode where we covered the Daisy ad, which is a famous political ad. Check that episode out on our podcast. Horton Hears Who is really about anti-isolationism and the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, Japan.
1: Okay, so if I remember correctly, Horton is an elephant
3: and... I've seen that movie.
0: Jairus, what happens in that movie?
3: This kangaroo... Doesn't like Horton because he think because he can hear people in this flower and she doesn't believe him until he really proves it and then she just throws it into the lava.
0: Okay, so is that
3: with that being said, I believe that
0: is real. <laughs> it is real. How did you get that one?
1: Thank you, Jerris.
0: Funny enough, with that explanation, it is about anti-isolationism when to say that the U.S. should not have stayed out of World War II. And it's also about the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, Japan. Cat in the Hat is really about health problems from breeding designer pets.
1: I'm going <laughs> to go with fake.
0: Correct. Uh, you have five right now. So three more and you get a prize. The Cat and the Hat Comes Back is really about Nixon. President Nixon.
3: Fake.
1: I should have probably paid more attention in history because I don't even know if Nixon came back, but (laughs) I am going to say real.
0: That one is fake, unfortunately. Jairus gets fake. <laughs> Yertle the Turtle? That one is really about Hitler. What?
1: Again, don't remember that one.
0: Fake. Jera says fake.
1: Uh, he's a smart kid. I'm gonna go with fake.
0: <laughs> that one's real. That story is, is about Yertle the Turtle, who's this authoritarian leader. And he does some crazy stuff.
1: Does he have a cool mustache?
0: <laughs> it's fine. Cool. I think you'll we'll have to see. Four more here. You have to get three more right to get your prize. Oh, the thinks you can think is really about the boundless limits of one's imagination.
1: I'm going to say real.
0: That one is real. Jarvis agrees. Your only old once is really about... The US healthcare system.
1: (laughs) I'm going to go with fake.
0: That one is real. Ah. Yeah. We we have to take care of our our, uh, seniors' healthcare. All right. Hop on Pop is really about the harmful effects of soda on children's health. Jarris really thinks it's fake.
3: Uh,
1: I don't know. You've steered me wrong in some of them. I don't remember what that one is about at all. I need to reread it. I got a 50 50 chance. I am going to say real.
2: Nope. Sorry. Yay! Yeah.
0: <laughs> It's it's like, a, I think pop is meant to be like a father. Like hop on pop, right? Yeah, Jairus agrees. So now, now this last one, because I think you're out of chances here. Green eggs and ham is really about genetically modified foods.
1: I'm going to say
2: real.
0: Oh, also fake. <laughs> Still, that's not too bad. You got seven. Sorry, sorry, you have to repeat school.
1: That's embarrassing.
0: Oh, I forgot. I forgot to get you signed the contract beforehand. Ah. All right, you can just continue your life as normal.
3: <laughs> Strange game. The only winning move is not to play.
0: All right, so let's do our last bit of things here. Uh, normally, we have what's called the parking lot movie discussion, where it's kind of like you we go to the movies, and then we're before we go home, we're in the parking lot talking amongst each other. What well, we thought about it. Well, we didn't watch this in the movie theater, so let's call this for this episode the book club discussion. So okay. We, we did read this book. Jerris read it too. I've got a couple questions that I think would be fun to talk about. First, because this was a, a big part of the discussion, is this book too spooky for kids? Is it? It's a story about you know it ends whether or not uh, the Ukes and the Zooks destroy each other is is a mystery. Is this something that you would let your child, or I guess we let our nephew read it, but Knowing what it was about, is it okay for kids?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I've thought a lot about this after reading the book. And now that I'm older and wiser, supposedly, <laughs> uh, and I can recognize what the underlining message is in the book, uh, I also realize that you don't see that when you're a kid. And it's more of just for entertainment at the surface level. So, no, I don't think it's too spooky or heavy for kids unless sh- uh, you're a kid that is into nuclear arms race
0: (laughs) yeah that's so i wasn't into this stuff when i was a kid and i wondered if i would have actually read this book if i would have picked up on this probably not but the idea of continually trying to one-up the other person and realizing that when it comes to things like violence maybe violence is not the answer because it results in a cycle of continual violence right back at you i think that's an interesting theory for kids One of the contemporary people that talked about this, um, a psychologist named Eric Chavon, he's someone who has filmed children around the world to talk about nuclear war. He said, quote, I think it's really important for kids to be given unambiguous and positive messages that are coupled with a call to action. When kids ask me if there's going to be a nuclear war, I say, I don't think so, because so many people are working on it. So that's what he's trying to say, is that this book should have had an ending, where, yeah, it's dangerous, but it's a hopeful message, and people can eventually try to to move on from that. I don't know if I think we need that for this. Uh, Dr. Seuss said he, when people asked him about this, he said he was tempted to give it a happy ending, but he thought it would have been dishonest uh, because it's the situation that we are today. I, I, I kind of think I agree with this. I think it's one of those things where – it's a book that makes people think. I would be okay with my child reading it as long as you place it in the proper context that you have a conversation about it afterwards. And if that's the the avenue that the, that the the young person would read that book and take that message out of it and it produces questions, questions are good. Second question I have here for us to talk about, what do you think the book says about society and war? Like, Do you think it's fair that the author – basically boils the conflict between the U S and the Soviet union down to the, the differences between people buttering their bread on different sides. Cause the joke is right. This is, I'm really stating the obvious. If you flip the bread upside down, it's the same thing. It might not crazy. Am I taking crazy pills on this?
1: Right. But I think that people nowadays have a natural instinct to want to be right mm. and separate themselves from others. So um, with that, I also think that people want to outdo, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, Hmm. outdo their neighbor. So I do think that this is almost a clear depiction of what society was really like, especially in relation to war.
0: That that, that is interesting. I haven't thought about that perspective there. It is definitely about that because we see themes of that in the story about how excited they are that they get this next new weapon. And there's literally marching bands and song girls that praise the Yukes and their – Butter upsideness. I think the it is. I think it's a little unfair to talk about the U.S. and the Soviet Union as if you think about it as the, from the perspective of we're the same. Why are we even having this conflict? Now, I don't think you can necessarily take it to the level of we have this conflict. Therefore, let's have nuclear weapons and it's threaten each other's cities and destroy the world. But I think the the sense that the Soviet Union is the same as us except for this isn't really always the case. I mean, there were there were some pretty big violations of civil rights, of democracy, of individual liberty. Like these were, I think there's some major conflicts that we had. There, there was an ideological difference between communism and the United States. It's just a question about what do you do about it? Um, finally, I think it would be fun to talk about here. Do you think this would make a good live action movie adaptation? You talked earlier about how much you like Jim Carrey and the Grinch. Do you think this movie could be made with live-action characters?
1: Yeah, but I I think it it might be a little too dark for kids. You think so? But I I'd, I'd love to see the effects that we could do nowadays. <laughs> yeah,
0: it would be fun to see what the different weapons look like. They'd have to have more than just the the like several that they have in in this. I would love to see like a montage of just the craziest inventions that they can create
1: yeah i already know what they could use as the bitsy big boy boomeroo what is it the eos chapstick that's in the <laughs> little egg shape Yeah. that's the first thing i thought of when i saw the
0: little image in the book that's a practical effect there
1: absolutely
0: uh... my wife loves those things so now i'm gonna every time she goes to put them on her lips i'm gonna be like uh... be careful don't drop it <laughs> You know, I'm a weirdo. I would love to see this movie made into a live-action film. I think that there's some things we can do to update it because things that probably reflects reality here, but probably should change for if they were to do it today, is there are no female characters in this story that have any sort of decision-making ability. They're all just either song girls or members of the band or housewives that butter their bread one one way or the other. In the cartoon, there's there's female teachers and there's a couple other people, but there's no decision makers. And maybe that's a, a clear reflection of this as a, a, an all-boys club. I, I would say I think, I think there's things you can do to update this uh, that would make it a little bit more interesting for a modern audience, and they just need someone big to, to play grandpa. I don't know who it would be. Maybe Robert De Niro or
1: – Liam Neeson?
0: Liam Neeson would be great in this as grandpa. That'd be perfect. Who would you cast as Van Itch? Seems like he's more of like a young snapper.
1: Uh let's let's do a little something for the ladies and cast Ryan Gosling.
0: Okay. So Gosling v Liam Neeson. I can see that. Yep. I can see that. i uh, maybe we can get get the time a time machine version of Haley Joel Osman as the young man.
1: I knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> no joke, I knew you were
0: gonna say that. All right. So let's do our rating system. Let's close this out. We normally have a rating system between one and five, so that we can consistently rate all of our films and movies and books now uh, across, So we can have a good discussion and comparison. But we also like to tailor the rating system because we get in the weeds, we get super Ten. critical. What's that? Ten. Ten. <laughs> so we like to tailor the rating system so that it's it's specific to the individual content that we have because we get super critical about it when I get super critical about this. So I think we should do one out of five slices of bread. Here's my thinking. You have one slice of bread. That's a nice snack, but it's only one slice. It's not very filling, and you're very limited by the kind of toppings you can put on there. You can only put one thing. You got five slices of bread, however. That's a whole meal. That's a feast even, and you can put butter on one, jelly on the other, jam, marmalade, whatever you feel like it. What would you give this? One out of five slices of bread.
1: Uh, that's easy. I would go with a three. I think it's a really good story, but it le- definitely leaves us hanging at the end, and we don't even know what type of bread they're buttering. Is it rye bread? Is it white <laughs> bread? Wheat bread? Wonder bread? Too many
0: questions. It seems like the the Ukes and the Zooks have more in common than they are come to believe, because it seems like they all butter the same Wonder bread, right? Exactly. Maybe they can rally together against that town a little bit down the way that uses scones. Or Maybe.
1: even worse, gluten free bread. Oh
0: my gosh. Yeah. We can take them out. Yep. They'll form a new alliance against the glutes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're on to something here.
0: Great. Uh all right, so all right, so let me do my reading real quick too. Uh I would say a four because I'm not so concerned about the ambiguous ending. I think that that's a good starting point for a conversation as long as you read it with a child and then talk about the ending and some of the other elements of the context here. What keeps me from doing it as a five, it's just, it's very short. I know these books are supposed to be short, but there just isn't a lot there. Uh, and I think that this, some of the other Dr. Seuss books are just a little bit more accessible, I think, for children. This, this, this one's a pretty one-note story. I think that a lot of kids won't really get the story until maybe they're a little bit older, and at that point, there's other ways for them to to understand it. But I still think it's it's a pretty good story for children to read, and then for as a conversation starting point. Excellent. Normally, what we do at the end of the episode is I will recommend some stuff for people to check out if they like this kind of thing. Uh, maybe Diana, if she has anything, uh, she can rec- recommend something. But I'll recommend three things. One, the Washington Post article uh, called "Dr. Seuss and the Bomb." The article was published in 1984, and it's it's a review of the story, and it, it's a it's a counter view to the one we talked about here. Um, it's closer to the opinion that kids should have more hopeful messages than the Butter Battle books. I think it's an interesting slice. If you let me have a bread pun uh, of what people's opinions were about the story back in the day. Second, I recommend the cartoon version of this book. It's actually kind of entertaining. It drags on a little bit because it's a lot of singing. You know, it's a five to 10-page story, but they make this last 22 minutes. But there's some extra content and there's some some fun stuff in there. Um, Finally, uh, I would recommend a book called Trinity, A Graphic History of the First Atomic Bomb by Jonathan Fetter Vorm from 2013. It's a comic book about the first nuclear bomb test, and it goes into great detail through the medium of comics, and I think it's a great way of telling this story. Diana, do you have anything that you'd recommend?
1: Obviously, I'm not going to recommend any Dr. Seuss books because <laughs> I don't even know what they're really about, but I do <laughs> really love... You know oh what seven of them are about. <laughs> <laughs> I do love Oh, the Places You Will Go, and I think it's a good read for anyone moving on to a next phase in their
0: life. Terrific. Thank you. Jaris. do you have anything you recommend to people? Um,
3: I will recommend um, Who Was and What Was books. What are those about? It's about um, D-Day. There's the books of D-Day. Like, it'll tell you what it was D-Day about, all those kind of things, or, the, or people.
0: Cool. Yeah, well, Jairus' dad is in the Army, so I, I can see how those books would have made it your way. Those are good. I'm going to have to check those out. Thanks, Jaris. Uh And I see you have a Lego Batman t-shirt on. Would you recommend that to people,
3: too? Yeah.
0: Cool. Diana, thanks very much again for coming on the podcast. I'll see you the next time I'm in California, and I'll make you do another one of these. How about that?
1: <laughs> Sounds good.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. We're on Twitter, at nuclearpodcast, and we even have an email account supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the program, we'd appreciate it if you would consider subscribing on iTunes and leaving a review. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Diana.
3: And Jaris. And don't forget to leave a
0: like. (laughs) Thanks, Jaris. Hey, he said to leave a like. I did not prompt him to do that. I would (laughs) very much appreciate it. And also, remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get supercritical about it. And I must not forget... To remind you to have a good one, turn off the podcast. The show is now done.